Before we seek the Lord's face in prayer, brethren, I just want to underscore what I trust is part of your own uh, devotional disciplines, and I'm referring to taking what we read in our regular devotional reading, and when we come across promises, turning them into fuel for prayer, believing that how many soever be the promises of God, in Christ is the yes, and through him the amen. And in my Old Testament devotional reading this morning, I came across these verses in Isaiah 30, which it was a great delight to turn into fuel for pleading before God in the light of this day. In Isaiah 30 and verse 18, we read, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Strange thought that God is waiting that he might be gracious, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all they that wait for him. And then he goes on to say, He will surely be gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear, he will answer you. And what a joy it was to just bring that back to God and say, Lord, this is a promise given to me, sealed in the blood of your Son, and plead it before him in the light of our exercises together this day. So let's seek the face of God in the confidence that God speaks this word to us in Christ. Blessed are those that wait for him. He will surely be gracious unto us at the voice of our cry, when he shall hear, he will answer us. Let's seek his face in that confidence this morning. Holy Father, we are so thankful that you have accommodated to us in our need and given us exceeding great and precious promises And we remember the words of our Lord Jesus who said, If my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. And we know it was your Spirit speaking through the ancient prophets. And so we bring your very word back to you, that you wait to be gracious unto us. And when you hear our cry you will answer us. So we come this morning with thanksgiving and with praise that we may come with boldness and know that we are not being presumptuous to believe that when we pray and plead your promises before you that you wait to have mercy and to show grace to us. Our Father, we plead as we have in every previous session that you would grant us copious measures of the Holy Spirit as we continue to wrestle with these vital matters related to the act of preaching. Help your servant that he may speak clearly and accurately that these your servants who sit before me may listen with the Berean spirit and that together we may be conscious of having heart dealings with you to the end that we may become more effective preachers to your glory, to the edification of your people, and to the conversion of sinners. 
Hear us, we plead, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, when I gave you an overview of this unit in pastoral theology, I announced that I would eventually be addressing five aspects of this issue of the act of preaching. We've covered the first division, the preacher's relationship to his God in the act of preaching, and we are presently engaged in dealing with the second and the most extensive of the five divisions, namely the preacher's relationship to himself in the act of preaching. And under the umbrella of this heading, we have treated, first of all, the preacher's general physical condition and what I have called his pulpit deportment. We touched upon such things as the preacher's overall physical condition, his dress, his grooming, his posture, and even his facial expression. Now we are dealing with his emotional constitution and activity in the act of preaching. In the closing lecture yesterday, I addressed, first of all, what I called a working definition and description of the emotions, and secondly, the origin and the moral quality of the emotions. Now, in this hour, I propose to take up this third line of consideration, namely, the strategic place and function of the emotions in oral communication, the strategic place and function of the emotions in oral communication. It's an indisputable fact that the emotions can cause great physiological effects in general. Someone struck with real fear, it can cause the adrenal glands to pump out adrenaline, thereby greatly increasing the heart rate. Your heart is going along at this rate, thump, 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 and you get scared, and it's thump, 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 thump. And you may even say, I felt like my heart was going to jump out of my chest. The emotion of fear has tremendous effect upon our physiology. Anxiety can influence the flow of digestive juices, causing heartburn. What does grief do? Real grief It opens up tear ducts and can cause the whole body to convulse with sobbing. What does delight do? Well, yesterday I said when I was speaking about something that brought great spiritual delight that you couldn't see it, but I could feel it under my shirt. I had the goosebumps. It's an amazing thing that delight in the mind and in the human spirit does something to cause some kind of constriction in the hair follicles, and they stand up. It's an amazing thing. This interaction between the emotions and our physiology in general. But furthermore, it's an equally indisputable fact that the emotions exert a powerful influence on all of the factors and faculties involved in oral communication in particular. There is not only this undeniable and observable phenomenon of the relationship 
of the emotions and our physiology in general, but when we narrow it down to what goes on here, 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 and here, there is this intimate relationship. The voice, fear, and amazement can constrict the vocal cords. And people say, it left me speechless. That's a common expression of that felt reality. Or a passion to help or rescue someone in need can increase the volume of a man's voice far beyond what he would normally expect that he was able to express with his vocal apparatus. Think of that distraught mother. Her house is on fire. She's grabbed the little one in her own room swept her up in her arms. She's made her way out of the burning house, but she knows she has a three-year-old in another room. And while she's fled for safety with that little one, the firemen are seeking to reduce the fire, and yet she knows she has the fruit of her own womb in another room. What happens to this little five-foot, 110-pound woman? She becomes a dynamo of vocal energy. Please, please get my child. Discovering measures of vocal power that she perhaps never tapped before. Why? Because the emotion of mingled emotions of love and fear together have a tremendous effect upon her vocal apparatus. Sturdivant cites an incident that underscores this when he writes, An ancient story has reached our times of a dumb youth, not a stupid youth, but someone who had no faculty of speech, who on a certain occasion, when an assassin and lifted up his arm with a sword to slay his father, had his feelings so much excited that with extended arms and a most bitter cry for the first time he spoke, Oh, save my father! Now imagine with yourselves how the youth spoke these words, and then our meaning is exemplified as to feelings and their effect upon our vocal powers. The principles of divine grace which impart an energy and a value to human language infinitely above what it would otherwise possess, neither abrogate nor forbid the operation of our feelings, but on the contrary, improve and regulate them. And if feelings, affections, or passions have any existence in our hearts, they will naturally find their way to our lips, will pervade our countenance, our head, our arms, will catch the fire, and emotions as well as ideas will be thus communicated to our hearers. Emotions communicated as well as our ideas. It seems then a necessary inference that if the thing felt be a matter of pure nature, then it is not a matter of art. And the existence of that which constitutes the fact of powerful feeling is necessary before art can be summoned to our aid. The following has been ascribed to the celebrated Mr. Garrick, 
He was probably the most well-known Shakespearean actor in his day. And he quotes him now as conveying his sentiments on this subject. A student, it appears, had requested to know Mr. Garrick's sentiments on public speaking. And his reply was nearly as follows. My dear pupil, you know how you would feel and speak in the parlor to a dear friend who was in imminent danger of his life and with what energetic pathos of diction and countenance you would enforce the observance of that which you really thought would be for his preservation. Perhaps you've had a friend who knew of a certain cure for his particular malady, but your friend in the parlor is ignorant of it. With what pathos and earnestness would you set your case before him, seeking to solicit his consent to seek out that particular medical preservation? You would not think of playing the orator or of studying your emphasis, cadence, or gesture. You would be yourself. And the interesting nature of your subject, impressing your heart, would furnish you with the most natural tone of voice, the most proper language, the most engaging features, and the most suitable and graceful gestures. What you would be in the parlet, be in the pulpit, and you will not fail to please, to effect, and to profit at you. Goodbye. I have nothing more to say to you. And McIlvain captures this element of what I'm seeking to set before you as well. He's dealing with the fact that the passions, the emotions have their own peculiar language of mystical signs is what he calls it. And under that heading he writes, in fact, Each several passion, mode of feeling, and state of mind has its own peculiar dialect, so to speak, of this symbolical language. For these signs, whether addressed to the ear or to the eye, are very different, not only for the different passions, but also for their ever-varying degrees of intensity and for all their modifications and blendings with each other. And they vary still further in persons of different temperaments, culture, and circumstances. A very crucial observation. They They vary in persons of different temperaments, culture, and circumstances. This language, therefore constitutes a most copious, significant, and expressive part of delivery. For it is by means of it that the emotions and passions of the soul communicate themselves from one person to another along with the intellectual operations, indeed, but often independently, and without intervention of thought. And then he gives specific examples of it, of how the passion of anger has its nonverbal signals, the passion of sorrow, the passion of love, convincing stuff that there is this direct relationship between the emotions 
and how we use not only our voice, but it overlaps into the next area of concern, our physical action in preaching. So our emotions will affect our voices, but also our vocabulary. Think of a young man who has sought to win and to woo a young woman. She has spurned him, but his heart is set upon her. What does he do? He begins to entreat and to plead and to open his heart, and he may find himself drawing upon vocabulary that perhaps he's never used, but unconsciously has acquired. And if there are words stored in the file drawers of his brain that the emotion of passionate love and desire to win this woman can in any way help, he reaches into those file drawers and draws up words that perhaps, as I say, he's never used before or not used for a long time. Likewise, in speaking, The emotions will not only affect the vocal apparatus, the vocabulary used, but the attendant physical action. A father is fishing with his son, and he's been told that a certain type of fish is is running at this time of the year. And you fishermen know what the term running. It's not the fish haven't gotten out on the street and wobbling down on their legs but they're going back to their spawning grounds or to the place where they spawn. And so they're fishing. But the sun falls off into the rushing river and the water begins to carry him downstream and the father's determined to rescue his son. What happens? Not only does something happen to his vocal cords and to his diaphragm and to his larynx in terms of the volume of his speaking, but his physical action He may throw himself into the river while he says, Son, son, hold on, son, I'm coming for you. He doesn't say, now, what is the appropriate vocal response to this emergency? What is the appropriate physical? No, the emotion and the passion of genuine love for his son of fear for his son's condition and state and the ultimate result if he doesn't rescue him, those passions of the soul bring to their service instinctively all the powers of his voice, all the powers of his physical action. And brethren, that's what should happen when we preach that we're not thinking about our voice should go up here and down there. And in our notes we have, raise your voice here, lower your voice here, intensify. No, no, no. It's these feelings, these emotions with their tap roots in the truth, mingled with a passion to do what? To win the lost and to edify the saints that carries us out in the totality of our humanity as we preach. You see, here is the fundamental difference in the human being, and some of you, I hope you're old enough to remember the older computerized voice. Uh, Some of you maybe have gone through the uh, airport in Atlanta, and they have this underground train shuttle, all computer-operated. And at least you used to get on and it would say, 
This train is operated by a computer. It will carry you to terminals A, B, and C. Please notice the sign at each entrance and exit at the appropriate time. No inflection, no emotion expressed, just a computer talking. Well, there's a tremendous difference between the computerized voice and the voice of the living human being. If I were in computerized form, tell you this, today is Wednesday, we are gathered together at April 7th and 9.30 in order to press on in our lectures on pastoral theology, unit number five. Then if the smoke detectors went off and the computer kicked in, the sound you hear is a smoke detector that is indicated this building is on fire, your life is in danger, exit the building according to directions. Not very persuasive, is it? Why? There's no energy and nuance of emotional engagement. That's the fundamental difference. And brethren, our preaching ought from the outset to indicate we have the deepest kind of emotional engagement. Consistent with our personality? Yes. Not everyone is going to say, consistent with our... That's the way God scrambled me together in my mama's womb. And when I'm free in the Holy Spirit, my hands are free. To, all of me is free. That's the way God put me together. He didn't put you together that way. But anyone sitting before you will know you are not standing before them to do an exposition of number 23, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and now we are going to turn to the... No, no. They will sense from the outset, brethren, your emotions are engaged with the truth. Your affections are are engaged with those to whom you minister. And not only do the emotions influence the speaker in oral communication, they have a profound effect upon the listener. It is a fact that for good or evil, by means of truth or error, he who moves men's affections moves men. It's a fact. The Holy Spirit neither negates nor bypasses this fundamental reality of human experience. Rather, he lays hold of it and sublimates it to the accomplishment of the saving purposes of God. Listen again to one of the old masters. Wright, in his philosophy of elocution, is urging upon the Christian student of eloquence, quote, earnestness of manner and energy of expression. And he relates the following story. A citizen of Athens came to Demosthenes, the great Grecian orator, and besought him to plead his cause against someone who had treated him with great cruelty. Now the person, having made his complaint with an air and style of perfect coldness and indifference, the orator Demosthenes was not inclined to believe him. He said to him, 
This affair cannot be as you represented it. You've not suffered hard usage. Here, merely from the lack of earnestness and expression, the veracity of the person was disputed, and that too by Demosthenes. A pathetic address with finely interwoven phrases was not essential to convince Demosthenes of the fact. He only required perhaps a probable picture when the orator Demosthenes intimated his disbelief of the fact of the man who said, this has been done to me, I want you to represent me in a legal framework. Plutarch informs us that the citizen immediately expressed himself with the utmost emotion, I not hardly used, I not hardly treated. Now, says Demosthenes, I begin to believe you. That's the form, that's the language of an injured man. You see his point? The order recognized if a man's been injured, he feels the emotion of a wounded spirit. And that emotion, when it expresses itself in words, will suck into itself the energy of that emotional state. And then Demosthenes said, I now acknowledge the justice of your cause, and I will be your advocate. We learn from even these secular people the lesson that indeed there is this relationship between the feelings and the emotions with which our thoughts are being clothed. Again, hear the perceptive words of Dabney on this aspect of the place of emotions in oral communication. And this is a rather lengthy quote, but it's very perceptive. In his exposition of 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Now are we perhaps prepared to give an answer to the question, how far sympathy, that is, conveyance of an emotional state in preaching may legitimately be employed as a lever for moving the careless about the things of God. For my British friends, a lever, I know, but for us Americans, it's a lever. So we have a lever-lever, and Dabney's going to say, I'm going to address whether or not it is legitimate to think of our emotions that are throbbing through our words as a legitimate lever in the hearts and minds of others. This law of sympathy, yes, of the religious sympathies, was given to our souls by our Maker. Was it for nothing? General revelation. God has made us in such a way that The sympathies, the emotional state of the speaker is conveyed to his hearers along with the substance of the words themselves. Has it, unlike his other works, no legitimate use? Again, the true orator, and I say, and this is what Dabney's thinking, the true gospel preacher, when other works... I'm sorry, the true gospel preacher, when he arouses feeling by the exhibition of his own feeling, undoubtedly appeals to this law of sympathy. Is all this improper? We answer no. 
there is a legitimate use which may be made of this law. We often find our fellow men, because of their inattention, insensible to the clear truths presented to the understanding, which are the spirit's soul instruments for salvation. Dabney comes back to that principle again and again. It is by the truth penetrating the understanding that all the supernatural work of God is done in the souls of men. But here someone is indifferent to the words conveyed to his understanding. It is then desirable to superinduce feeling in connection with these truths, even if it be at first unintelligent feeling and such as is not sanctifying in order that the saving truth may catch the attention, may be truly heard, remembered, and by God's further blessing felt. We would then allow to those sympathetic impressions their proper place as means, but as means of secondary grade and importance. They are indeed only means to other means. They are but an expedient for securing attention to that more direct means, the truth, by which alone saving impressions can be made. If, therefore, the preacher aims to excite the sympathetic religious emotions by that scriptural and rational warmth of feeling with which he is expounding scripture truth to the understanding, with that feeling which such truths should reasonably stimulate in a gracious and enlightened heart, he does well. He is guilty of no abuse. For while he aims to produce the sympathetic emotion, which, if it remained mere sympathy, would be unintelligent and worthless for ulterior good, he also presents Bible truths to the understanding, gaining for them the warmth and quickened attention of the temporary feeling, so that by their truths the hearer's soul may now perhaps be profited. But if he merely seeks to excite and harrow the sympathies by touching or dramatic incident or by fiery displays of passion which contain no perspicuous or clear explication of Bible truths, he is abusing his power. He's exciting by mere contagious influence a senseless and worthless agitation which can do no good being accompanied with no light for the understanding and which is likely to do irreparable evil by being mistaken for true religious feeling. And then I commend to you the further quote in which he amplifies again the legitimacy of recognizing this factor of the contagion of human emotion that should be brought within the orbit of our preaching to men. And then Dabney, quote number 21. The phenomenon of instinctive sympathy... That's what we're talking about, that when the preacher expresses certain emotions, there is a contagion in those emotions. The phenomenon of instinctive sympathy 
is the preacher's right arm in the work of persuasion. To sympathize is to be affected with our fellow man. And because we see him affected, it is, as it were, a spiritual infection by which he impregnates us with his feeling. It's a marvelous sentence. He impregnates us with his feeling because he genuinely feels and his words are clothed with the appropriate expressions of that feeling, he impregnates us, not with just empty feeling, but the way in which our words come, throbbing with specific feelings, helps that truth to find its way into this man's mind and heart. It is the secondary rainbow more faintly reflecting the glow of the first, The effect is immediate and instinctive. We feel simply because we see our fellow creature feeling. Now then, if you would make others feel, you must feel yourself. And then he has a Latin phrase, the understanding of which totally eludes me because I don't read Latin, so I skip it. Let the preacher's own soul be fully penetrated and aroused by sacred emotion, The heavenly flame must be kindled first in your own bosom that by this law of sympathy it may radiate thence into the souls of your hearers. I warn you emphatically, moreover, that this emotion in the speaker's soul must be genuine and not simulated. The mere appearance of ardent feeling, however artfully it may be imitated, will fail of producing the effect. There is, and here I question the use of infallibly. I don't know that I would say infallible. I would say there is an ordinarily present intuition in man's heart by which he detects the reality or falsehood of the appearance of emotion. And those whose feelings are least sophisticated by artificial culture, even children and ignorant persons, have this insight only the more fully, perhaps, for that very reason. In other words, uncultured people who aren't used to just looking at external things can sniff out a phony more quickly, perhaps, than the cultured and the cultivated. Sympathy is a species of spiritual contagion. The painted automaton, when seen at a distance, may appear to glitter and to move itself like a living man. But when we touch it, we perceive it once. There is no life. In other words, you've seen, I forgot, where is it that Lincoln comes out and makes his speech and they have a Lincoln and he moves his hands and all the rest. You get up and touch him and you say, this ain't the real deal. Lincoln has not been raised from the dead and standing before. This is an automaton. I am so persuaded the rule is universal that only genuine emotion can propagate a sympathetic effect that I do not doubt it is true even of the mimic eloquence of the stage. The consummate actor moves the spectators only because he has so realized to himself 
the sentiments and passions natural to the part he is acting, that his own proper personality is for a time merged in and superseded by that of the hero whom the poet's imagination has created. He actually feels and lives the history as his own. The great and classic authorities with one voice assert both the possibility and the necessity of sincere passion. Cicero quotes Democritus and Plato as declaring that no one can be a good poet without ardor of the spirits and, as it were, a divine athletus of passion. We have seen his testimony above that this kind of oration which is designed to move the spirits of others moves the speaker himself even more than them who listen. That's why so many actors and actresses have messed up lives, because they don't know who they are. From January to June, they have so immersed themselves in the part they're going to play. In the first part of the year, it's the part of a drunken, swearing, lecherous villain. And so they become, in life, many of them, the lecherous, swearing villain. From July to the end of the year, they're playing a noble character. And they so immerse themselves, you'd almost think they've been converted. They clean their life up and they begin to live the part that they are playing on the screen. So when people say, uh, don't do what the play actor does, he's not playing. He's dead in earnest. In fact, someone asked a famous actor, how come you guys have a hearing and we preachers don't? And it may have been Garrick who answered and said, you preach truth as though it were fiction. We speak fiction as though it were truth. An engagement from the inside out so that when they play the part, that part is clothed with that reality that starts in the inner springs of the heart. And brethren, anyone who then says that emotion in preaching is a carnal exercise in emotionalism doesn't have a clue what preaching is. If it's not clothed with human emotions, it's not preaching. How can we traffic in the kinds of truths in which we're called to traffic without present Deep, at times, overwhelming feeling. The late Professor Murray was recorded as saying to me, preaching without passion is not preaching at all. He was known occasionally to go to a black church in Philadelphia because he said, I go there and I see preaching with passion. I won't tell you what his ordinary church was where he saw very little passion in the preaching. Surely if these perspectives relative to the relationship between the emotions and oral communication in general are valid, and then the relationship between emotions and speaking, then is it not unthinkable that a man should stand before his fellow mortals with a mind impregnated with divine truth, 
his own affections warmed by that truth and under the peculiar and present assistance of the Holy Spirit in his preaching, is it not unthinkable that emotional energy should not pulsate throughout his discourse? If he really believes the truths in which he traffics, how can he be without expressed emotion in the conveyance of them? Furthermore, is it not the height, the height of an unsound theology of the constitution of man as created in the image of God and redeemed by the grace of God that would assert that intense emotional energy in preaching is both unwarranted, indiscreet, and even unnecessary. Or even worse, some assert that it is a profane pollution of the sacred privilege of preaching and a carnal intrusion of the theater into the sanctuary. And I rear back with every fiber of my being and I say, Biblical, psychological nonsense. I go back to the analogy of the distraught mother. She earned a reputation in her little five foot, 110 pound being of being very quiet, very sedate, a very proper woman. No one has ever heard her raise her voice, scolding her children. She does it with consummate modesty and restraint. She's never hollered at her husband, hey, Henry! No, she's been known to say, dear, do this, do that. The whole pattern of her life in terms of its vocal and physical expressions was restraint, modesty, the epitome of a meek and a gentle spirit. But when her baby's in that room, and flames are licking at the door, and she becomes this intense physical and vocal dynamo. Firemen, please, there's a baby in that back room. Please rescue my baby. Who would come up to her and say, you've adopted the tricks of the theater? She'd had every reason to spit in their face for their impudence. And brethren, when the truth of God grips us right down to our toenails, and that truth is what we are conveying, it is unthinkable that it will not bring to its service the full range of the emotions that can then be conveyed with this marvelous instrument called the human voice. We're going to speak of that in subsequent lectures and bring all of our physical faculties into play, yes, according to the way God made us, put us together in our mama's womb, the cultural influences that have framed us, a host of variables, so there is no fixed model of what it will look like if we come to grips theologically and biblically a theology framed by special and general revelation that our emotions have a free but controlled expression in the act of preaching. I trust by now that we would all subscribe without reservation 
to these sentiments of McIlvain. And I'm going to read the poem that is there. And I don't know who Telephus and Peleus were. I would just imagine they are people who were known in that day to whom the poet is speaking, Horace. So if you don't know who Telephus and Peleus are, join me. I don't know either. So don't let that hinder you. Here are the words of McIlvain. There's no more fruitful source of power in the delivery than the emotions and passions of the soul. Let that sentence sink in. No more fruitful source of power in the act of preaching, to use my terminology, than the emotions and passions of the soul. These are the true inspiration of eloquence itself, as also of poetry, music, painting, sculpture, and all the aesthetic arts. This fundamental principle has been expressed once for all time in the very well-known lines of Horace, of which the following is a very inadequate translation. Apparently, McIlvain could read it in the original, like so many of these older men. I've just finished reading John Adams' biography by McCullough, and one of the things he loved to do in his years of retirement was to read the Greek uh, orators and poets in Greek and in Latin, and you just say how impoverished we are intellectually. So apparently, McIlvain could read this in the original and say, this is just a very inadequate translation. Responsively, the human features laugh to those that laugh and weep to those that weep. Wouldst make me weep? Then thou thyself must grieve, Telephus or Peleus. Thy words of woe then touch my soul. But if thy mandates fail in aught becoming thy true character, I laugh or sleep. Sad features speak sad thoughts. The frown of wrath, sweet smiles of sport and joy. A serious face bespeaks a serious mind. For nature forms us first within to feel the changeful lot of life, thrills with delight, impels to anger, weighs us down with grief, and chokes us with keen anguish, then declares with voice conformed her great interpreter the changing passions of the fervid soul. How beautifully he's captured this. What happens? The voice becomes conformed and is the interpreter of the changing passions of the fervid soul. So that the love we feel will find a way to choose words and clothe them in tones that bespeak love. Fear and anger will take on the words and the emotional content of anger. Brethren, it's a fact. It's the way God made us. And in redemptive purposes, God wants all of that to be sublimated to the work of preaching so that we are not just conveying bare ideas. And you see, 
That's one of the major differences between the spoken word and the written word. You cannot find enough symbols to clothe the written word with all of those things. And we're going to do some exercises in that when we come to the matter of the voice. And that's why God's chosen preaching as his grand instrument to tear down the kingdom of darkness and to build up the kingdom of his son. Because it's not the bare words and the intellectual concepts. Yes, they are fundamental. But in getting them into the soul, God uses living preaching because in living preaching, the emotions that ought to accompany those truths are expressed by the preacher. They're not expressed when words are embalmed in printer's ink. Now, what I want to do is to give you in closing this hour a marvelous, marvelous description of that great southern preacher, Thornwell. And this is written by his biographer. And every time I read it, I say, Oh, God, raise him up and let me hear him preach just once. Let me hear him preach just once. I read it in closing this hour. The feature most remarkable in this prince of pulpit orators was the rare union of rigorous logic with strong emotion. He reasoned always, but never coldly. He did not present truth in what Bacon calls the dry light of the understanding, clear indeed, but without the heat which warms and fructifies. Dr. Thornwell wove his argument in fire. What a precious sentence, wove his argument in fire. His mind warmed with the friction of its own thoughts and glowed with the rapidity of his own thought, glowed with the rapidity of its own motion. And the speaker was borne along in what seemed to others as a chariot of flame. One must have listened to him to form an adequate conception of what we mean. Filled with the sublimity of his theme and feeling in the depths of his soul its transcendent importance, he could not preach the gospel of the grace of God with the coldness of a philosopher. And he was a great philosopher when he dabbled in philosophical issues. His keen mind is seen so clearly, but he could not Preach the gospel of the grace of God with the coldness of a philosopher. As the flood of his discourse set in, one could perceive the ground swell from beneath, the heaving tide of passionate emotion which rolled it on. Kindling with a secret inspiration, his manner lost its slight constraint. Every time I read it, I say, what was his slight constraint? Did he hold his shoulders funny or did he hold... I'm often fat. What was his slight constraint that Palmer said would begin to melt and recede? The spasmodic shaking of the head. Did he have a tick like this? I try to think. What was it? I try to understand what he's saying. His slender form dilated. I can't reproduce that. His deep black eye lost its drooping expression. The soul came and looked forth, lighting it up with a strange brilliancy. His frail body rocked 
gripped and trembled as under a divine afflatus, as though the impatient spirit would rend its tabernacle and fly forth to God in heaven upon the wings of impassioned words until his fiery eloquence, rising with the greatness of his conceptions, burst upon the hearer in some grand climax, overwhelming in its majesty and resistless in its effect. In all this, there was no declamation, no histrionic mummery, no straining for effect, nothing approaching to rant. All was natural the simple product of thought and feeling wonderfully combined. One saw the whirlwind as it rose and gathered up the waters of the sea, saw it in its headlong course and in the bursting of its power. However vehement his passion, it was justified by the thoughts which engendered it, And in all the storm of his eloquence, the genius of logic could be seen presiding over its elements and guiding its course. The hearer had just that sense of power, which power gives when seen under a measure of restraint. The speaker's fullness was not exhausted. Language only failed to convey what was left behind. Now, would we aspire to be a thornwell? Well, God would have to stick us, most of us, back in our mama's womb and make a different product. (laughs) So let's face the fact, God has not endowed any of us here. He goes on to say, God has won every generation. But, but, brethren, can we not aspire to have such An attitude to preaching that we plead with God not only to give us insight to the truth we're laboring over in the study, but that God would give us the full measure of the appropriate emotional engagement with that truth. So that when we preach the fruit of our careful study, it is clothed with the optimum measure of emotional engagement appropriate to that given opportunity to preach. Surely, brethren, anything less means that we're going to be settled with something less than our highest measure of bringing glory to God, edification to saints, and salvation to sinners. Let's pray together. Our Father, How we thank you that you've blessed your church with men like a thornwell. We thank you that you've blessed your church with men who have written things that reinforce what we are wrestling with. But our God, we acknowledge as we soberly assess ourselves that we are not giants in the land as they But we offer up to you whatever we are, whatever you've put into us, whatever we've acquired in our pilgrimage. And with all of our hearts, Lord, we want to be optimally used to bring glory to you, salvation to sinners, and edification to your people. So take the things we've wrestled with in this hour Whatever's had the chaff of my own 
thinking that is not true to reality and to the scriptures, blow upon it and bring it to naught. Whatever has been true to the revelation of your truth in special and in general revelation, reinforced by these masters of the past, oh God, don't let us settle for anything less than that full measure of emotional engagement as we preach. Hear our prayer and answer us for Jesus' sake. Amen.